Walter Russell Mead is the Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal, the James Clark Chase Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College in New York, the Ravenel B. Curry III Distinguished Fellow in Strategy and Statesmanship at the Hudson Institute, and he's a member of Aspen Institute Italy. He's the author of five books, his latest, The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Future of the Jewish People. He's recently returned from Kyiv, capital of a nation that's fighting for its life. I'm a huge admirer of Professor Meat, and I have many questions for him. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're in this virtual room with us too, here on Foreign Policy. Walter, thanks for being with us. Good to be here. Keith, uh, you wrote a column about how difficult conditions are there, but also that you didn't hear from one person who believed Ukraine should trade land, specifically the Crimea or the Donbass, for peace. Did that surprise you? Not really. Um, uh, you know, everything that you read sort of lines up with that. Uh, and while I was in Kiev, I have to say it was you know, you expect somehow if you're going into a war zone that you're going to see a lot of war. And while there was, you know, where the Russians had um, invaded at the start of the war, I went to, you know, tour some of the sites and, and, and met with some of the people who were under the Russian occupation. And that was pretty grim. And you saw a lot of destruction. But the city of Kiev did not look like London during the Blitz or, um, uh, you know, sort of the kinds of devastation we're familiar with from old newsreels of, of World War II. It was, you know, you're just not getting what war meant in the 1940s of fleets of planes flying over cities and devastating whole blocks and downtown. You have missiles, and if they get through, they might hit a um, you know, a specific target like a power station and cause a blackout, which would then be repaired. Or you get, you know, I think more commonly now with the new missile defenses, just pieces of debris falling at random. So this is this is a different kind of war. And I was actually a little bit surprised to see and since how how low impact the war is on the cities. So it's also possible that one of these missiles will hit your apartment building because that's part of the Putin's terrorist strategy. Everyone should worry, and we, at least I think, that their city will be turned into what Mariupol's look like, or their neighborhood will be destroyed, or their apartment will be destroyed, and that's it for them, or they'll be killed. Right. Well, you certainly have all that, but again, this is this is more like kind of I think the psychology of the V one and V two rockets in London, where it was no longer the mass attacks, but just something might strike out of the blue. Right. And while that was, that's a very wearing and concerning thing. It's, it's just, it, it was just different maybe than, uh, than what we're used to thinking of war as being. Absolutely. Now you also write, and this is important, that helping Ukraine is not a charity project. Be undertaken out of sentiment nor is it a strategic distraction that weakens our hand in the Indo-Pacific. In his blindness and folly, Vladimir Putin has handed the U.S. a golden opportunity. We should seize it with both hands. Is President Biden seizing this opportunity with both hands? Good question. Um, you know, there, there, you can always do more. 
and you can always do less. And it's clear that inside the Biden administration, there's this constant tug of war going, you know, F-16s, no F-16s. Um, and, you know, you want to say, put the pedal to the metal. But on the other hand, it's, uh, it, you know, it's it's complicated. I think they've gotten a lot of things right. I think I would have preferred a more, a, a somewhat more aggressive approach. You know, okay, I want to be as fair as I can on this. So my guess is that if you're if you're Biden or you're somebody in the administration, you are you're more worried about Putin actually doing something like using nuclear weapons than you would have been about the Soviets using nuclear weapons. And I say that because as somebody who was a journalist and a student in the Soviet Union, this was an evil regime, but it was a very rational regime. And we're not sure that Putin is entirely rational. He could get frustrated one day, a lot of people think, and say, the hell with it, take out Washington or take out whatever. Now, I know a lot of people say, no, that's, that's who knows? We, I mean, we, or we can't, we do, he would never do that, or his deputies would not. But I think and what I'm getting at is that I, I suspect that Biden is trying to say, I'm going to continue to signal to Putin that I have, uh, there are limitations to my aid, and so there should be limitations to his retaliation and his response. Is that how you read it too? I think that's a piece of it. I think it's also, um, uh, you know, you're, I don't think the Biden administration uh, wants, you know, that its goal here is a complete defeat of Russia, complete return to the internationally recognized boundaries. I think it might like to see that, but it thinks that's maybe unrealistic. And so there's a, there's a sense in which um, while the Ukrainians don't want a compromised peace, Washington thinks there is no alternative. So it's it's it doesn't want to encourage militants in Ukraine either. It's 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 waffling between these two objectives, I think. And, and the other complication, I think you tell me if you agree, is that diplomatically, what you can't do is concede before negotiations start or before Putin has shown even an interest in a negotiated settlement of some kind or a compromise. Because if you say, well, OK, but we do understand that Crimea is not going back and parts of the well, if you start there, that's not where you end in any negotiation. Uh, and, and 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 a lot of people don't know. They say they say, well, yes, but we have to concede that now, and that will bring Putin into the negotiations. Not necessarily because he may see that as weakness and know that he has to push on, and he'll get more concessions in advance of any negotiations. Yes, right. yes, exactly. It just incentivizes him to pocket those concessions and wait and see what what we offer three months down the road to try to lure him into negotiations. And, and the other thing you hear people say, and you see this constantly, it's in a lot of a lot of columns that the U.S. has to push both sides to negotiate. I don't know how the U.S. pushes Putin to negotiate. I think I do know that whether it's Emmanuel Macron or Erdogan or Schultz, they're all they're all doing all the pushing. They've done all the pushing they can do, and it hasn't worked. It hasn't gotten Putin to say, you know what, let's figure out a way to at least bring a ceasefire uh, or an end, to, uh, uh, an end to hostilities for now, whether or not that would be okay with Ukrainians. Right. Do you agree with that, too, that they're not that we don't there's no mechanism we have to push to push Putin at this point that I'm aware of? I don't see 
if I were advising Putin, I can't see a reason for advising him to throw in the towel at this point. Um, he has too many options. You know, the Europeans may get tired of things. Ukrainian morale might crack. But uh, as the 2024 election approaches, if Trump is the nominee, uh, the Republican Party could become much more divided. If, why not wait and see if Trump actually wins in January? And in January 2025, is a very different America to deal with. It doesn't make a lot of sense for Putin to negotiate right now. Right. And give us a little more elaboration. When you say this is, there's a golden opportunity here for the U.S., I'm not sure everyone's going to say, oh, I, I see that. Explain and maybe convince people who don't get that why it's an opportunity for the U.S. Look, a if there's no doubt that um, Ukraine coming out of this war is going to be very worried about future wars with Russia. I mean, after all, Russia signed a treaty and you know, recognized their independence and their boundaries in 1991. Then in 2014, there were there were the whole set of agreements. It's clear that that it's not just Putin, but a lot of Russian opinion just does not believe that Ukraine is another country. You can read Alexander Solzhenitsyn. This was his view, and or at least of, of much of Ukraine. And so if you're a Ukrainian, you're going to be you're going to be like the Poles. You're going to be constantly worried that the Russians are going to attack. No one is going to have to make you spend or push you to spend 4% of your GDP on defense. You're going to want a strong army. And Ukraine, Poland, the Baltic states, I think these days Finland and Sweden are all going to be worried about Russian aggression after the war. It's not going to be like after the Cold War when basically everyone in Europe and for that matter in the U.S. just went to sleep and let defense spending collapse and who really cares and why are we, you know, why do we even have armies out there because we've evolved past war. There's going to be a very vigilant block of countries in sort of northern and eastern Europe who, for reasons entirely of their own, are going to value a strong military presence that keeps Russia in check and super value a transatlantic relationship, which brings America in. And that's going to be, that's going to counter the sort of more, the, the less engaged defense thinkers that you might find in some other European countries. And it's also going to, I think, There'll be a push within the EU and within NATO to keep those transatlantic ties strong. So good allies against Russia, deep believers in transatlanticism as the foundation of European security. Those both look to me like pretty good things from an American point of view. Got it. One point I want to make, uh, maybe four probably even on this podcast, but I think you'll find it interesting. Maybe you'll quibble with me, but I don't think. I think that Putin in his heart of hearts, sees himself as as a as a latter-day czar. And the proper title for a czar was czar of all the Russias. And what does all the Russias mean? It means Russia proper. It means Belarus, which is white Russia. It means Ukraine, which is frontier Russia or little Russia. And he cannot, 
he Russia has never been a nation state. It's always been an empire. He believes it can't exist except as an empire, and it can't be an empire if it doesn't have Ukraine. And Belarus, by the way, under Lukashenko, is a vassal state. It's essentially his. He can change the, the name or the title or the relationship, but all he has to do is, you know, type it out and hand Lukashenko a pen and he'll sign. I think that's right. Um, Putin's, and and again, we should say it's not just Putin who thinks this way. No. A lot of people in Russia think this way. And again, from Putin's point of view, the truth of this is demonstrated not by, you know, ancient history or something, but the 1990s, when under Yeltsin's weak, corrupt, and totally criminal government, let's just say so, the United States backed a crazed alcoholic who was, you know, in, in th- telling ourselves, oh, we're promoting democratic transition in Russia. When the history of that is written, people are going to people are going to have so much contempt for the architect of American policy in Russia in the 1990s. Um, and the, the illusions, the depravity, the insanity, the Harvard consultants trotting over there with grand plans to restructure. But in any case, in that moment of weakness in Moscow, after the Soviet Union had fallen apart, the Russian Federation was visibly falling apart. And so Putin comes in really with the war in Chechnya, a horrible, ghastly thing uh, that that he saw as absolutely necessary to preserve the Russian Federation. So Putin doesn't think, oh, well, I can stop the war in Ukraine, turn away from imperial ambitions and enjoy my stable nation state at home. He actually thinks Russia crumbles at home if it isn't moving into Ukraine, I think. And, and when we talk about Russian Federation, we're talking about, I would say, a a, a, a Russian empire that has been that's had its has been cut off at the knees. It's a trunk because Chechnya, everyone one can say that the Chechens, a lot of them are, are a separate nationality related. Russia as an empire expanded not by sea, but by land, right? Vladivostok, what does the word mean? Ruler of the East. I think Xi Jinping knows that and thinks about that, but it's not on his immediate uh, to-do list. In, in a way, are you making an anti-neocon argument in the sense of the neocons be saying we democracy can and should spread everywhere? We should push it everywhere, not just push. This is an argument I've had, say, with Elliot Abrams. I would say we should push for freedom and human rights, but we can't realistically push for democracy everywhere. It's a hard thing. It, it, that's a, it's a hard thing to, to to manage. Are you are you saying that this this was overly ambitious by people who kind of bought the end of history argument, the idea that there's no rational way to organize a society except as a liberal democracy? I guess what I'd say is that both the liberal internationalists and the neocon uh, neocons fell into a fit of hubristic madness after the fall of the Soviet Union, and the American establishment lost touch with the real world and real history. Um, And I think, by the way, when you ask why is Donald Trump a factor in American politics, you can't understand that without understanding the grotesque failures of the American foreign policy establishment in the last 30 years. So, um, you know, a bunch of Harvard consultants were going to make Russia a democracy uh, free trade was going to make Mexico and China wonderful democracies. 
Um, and then the U.S. military was going to make Iraq a democracy. Um, you know, none of this worked out the way it was planned. But you can't say, oh, those evil neocons, because the shining liberal internationalists were just as crazy, just as out of touch with reality and led the American people on just that number of crazy wild goose chases. So we, you know, I'm not saying everything that happened in the last 30 years was bad or a mistake. A lot of really good things happened. But nevertheless, American foreign policy was out of touch with reality and the costs are high and they're growing. In terms of the, those who are, who are discontented with American support for Ukrainians, who I, I would argue, and I know you would, are trying to protect their independence, their sovereignty, their, demo- their fledgling democracy, I think it is that, their freedoms, all of that. It's odd and interesting that essentially Code Pink and Tucker Carlson are taking the same position. Yeah, um, you know, that's not hugely surprising. If Molotov and Ribbentrop could agree, I don't see why, you know, the the fringes in the United States can align, can't align. Uh, But let's, you know, I mean, it's easy to sort of uh, mock and, and condemn some of these populists with, you know, what looked to me like pretty ungrounded, forms of overreaction and conspiracy thinking and so on and so forth. But but again, we have to set against it that the entire American establishment said free trade with China will make Americans rich and the Chinese free. And you would be drummed out of Washington if you dissented from that sentiment for most of the last 25 years, right? And it was totally not true. It was ideological. It was it was the equivalent of, of, of the Kool-Aid at Jonestown in terms of, you know, it was it was a, a huge illusion and an error. So you can't blame people today who don't trust anything that often the same talking heads who were telling you for years and years and years that Iraq was going to be a beautiful democracy, Afghanistan, you know, we're going to have pride flags in Kabul. We were going to have, you know, just glorious stuff everywhere. All right. And now they tell you, support Ukraine, you stupid, ignorant peasants. Don't you know the first thing about human freedom? Of course, they're going to be skeptical. So I'm going to push back just a little bit. One is, I do think if we had stayed in Iraq, First of all, I don't think Iraq, Iraq, compared to a lot of its neighbors, is not the worst. It's not the worst place in the Middle East. People still vote. People still have political parties. Still but somehow vote. that's not what George W. Bush no. and Andy Rice said it was going to be, and you know it. I do, but we needed to be there for a very long time to have a, the kind of transformation that was that would have been necessary, as we have been in Germany for a rather long time, and Japan for a rather long time, and even Afghanistan. Uh, in I've, I don't know. I know Afghans who say, "Look, in Kabul, we had a lot of freedom. Uh, women were going to school. We it, it, it was it was the best place we'd ever seen in our lives, and we lost again." I don't think we should have gotten out of Afghanistan. Look, but you know what? If we had been fighting a guerrilla war in Germany and Japan, an indefinite guerrilla war, 
and the local governments were only able to hold on to power because of American military support, I don't think we would have stayed there for 70 years either. You know, the, the cases are not comparable. What we did in Germany and Japan, we basically flattened both countries, killing huge numbers of civilians. And then for the next 10 years, we had our fists, our foot on their throat. You know, and we we basically the American president decided how many calories every person in those countries got to eat every day because we controlled the shipping and they had no resources, et cetera. So, you know, with that kind of power, yes, you can have an impact on all kinds of things and all kinds of things happen. We didn't we were not going to do that in Iraq or Afghanistan. We couldn't do that in Iraq or Afghanistan. And the idea that somehow it was the beautiful purity of our beliefs, the nobility of our character and the you know, the sort of wisdom of our ec economists that would just win over these, you know, Iraqi tribes who had been betrayed by us many times. Think of the Marsh Arabs and, you know, our serial betrayals of the Kurds and so on and so forth. Um, you know, it just, it wasn't there. It wasn't there any more than, than Yeltsin's Russia was a step toward democracy in Russia. And so, you know, we, the establishment, and I, I swallowed some, not all, but I swallowed some of that Kool-Aid myself. All right. Mm -hmm. um, we got a lot of things wrong. And until I think we've demonstrated that we've reflected on this, have learned, um, you know, and so, you know, we're our, the message to the American people, the American people look and say, we gave you guys the keys to the car. You drove it into the ditch. Now you want the keys to the car again. Uh, excuse me, why? And and that's the case, you know, and that's why there is a mountain of skepticism in some quarters on what is to me a pretty clear case for supporting Ukraine. And the difference with Ukraine is you think it's developed beyond the what what Afghanistan or what Iraq had or or probably could in the foreseeable future. In other well, words, it's a it's a fledgling liberal democracy right. trying to actually clip. No, I'm not. I'm I'm a little more cautious about Ukraine's democratic credentials in the sense that, um, you know, I've I've been going to Ukraine. The first time I drove through, it was still the 19. It was still part of the Soviet Union. You know, they've had three revolutions and hadn't had built a state yet by until the war came. I think the war may be giving them a state. I'm not sure it's going to give them a democracy when all is said and done. But and my support for the Ukrainian cause is not grounded on my on political science assumptions about their readiness for democracy. It's more looking at. Um, where are, you know, how are they going to geopolitically align? What is What does Ukraine do in the world? And I could envision a variety of political scenarios working out in, in Ukraine after this. I do think with the prospect of EU membership and things, there are more forces tugging Ukraine towards some kind of a democratic outcome. But I, I think it's important not, you know, we have a lot of tenured political scientists in this country writing a lot of peer-reviewed articles about democracy. They don't, their predictive record is not inspiring. And so I don't think it's it's wise or prudent 
to base the case on Ukraine on confident statements, oh, the corruption will be gone, the factionalization, the oligarchs will all start singing the national anthem and being patriotic and give up their excessive power. The judges will become honest. The politicians will stop being clients of hidden interests. Let's not make all those assumptions, but let's look at where things are going. So you're, I find that persuasive you're making a real politic argument in favor of supporting Ukraine. It's good geopolitically for the U.S. and for the West. Right. And we may get some nice democratic benefits. And I, I wouldn't object. I would be happy. I would welcome them. I just don't think that's the right way to to base this kind of a foreign policy decision, especially given the last 30 years. I, I, I'm I'm totally in accord. I'm totally persuaded. I'll just throw in one data point, which is that I was an election observer for the last election. And it had an impact on me because people were so proud that they were conducting elections and they so wanted to show me and the other election observers, look, we're doing this right. And you can interview members of any political party you want to. And there were plenty, including parties that were accommodationist towards Russia, including, by the way, uh, Slug Naroda, the part of the party of Zelensky, servant of the people. It was not an anti-Russian, an anti-Putin or anti-Russian party. He wanted to get along with with Putin if he could. Anyway, I don't. I mean, that doesn't alter your argument. I agree with your argument. I just throw that in as a data point because it's, as they say nowadays, my lived experience of being over there and seeing them take such pride in saying, "Aren't we a free and democratic country?" Just. Well, I, I would be more sympathetic to that if I hadn't been to Ukraine after their other democratic <laughs> revolutions and heard exactly the same kind of stuff. All right. Democracy ain't for sissies, let's face it. Um, let's talk about your column on Latin America, where American influence has been diminishing, while Chinese, Russian and Iranian influence has been growing. And first, would you agree that Beijing, Moscow and Tehran, that's isn't that a new axis? Well, you know, that you know, I think any one of those three would stab any of the others in the back if if they thought it would be better for them. But as it is, they all seem to be to think they can do better working collaboratively to stab us than to turn on each other. But, you know, it's not it's not a band of brothers, I'll put it that way, but they're operating on some shared assumptions about about what they want. But the fascist axis, axis, I think, also wasn't a band of brothers. It was a, a marriage of convenience. I think uh, Hitler would, would would have Mussolini in the right. back. Well, Cliff, as was our own alliance with the Soviet Union. Absolutely. Let's, let's yeah. not... Uh, no, right. Well, I'm not sure sentiment has a... There's a... How, how to say this or how to ask this. The sentiment probably doesn't have a huge, should not have a huge role in national security and foreign policy, although for what has been an idealistic nation like the United States, it may need to. Well, you know, it's, you know, I, when I was working on this book on U.S.-Israel relations, one of the things that struck me was we always talk very sentimentally about the relationship but, you know, Israel was a democracy, the only democracy in the Middle East from 1948 to 1973. And the United States was just not very interested in helping Israel at all during that time. So, you know, it, let's be careful how we let's not deceive ourselves about ourselves, I think is important. It's important to say. But I, but I, what I also wanted to say was that 
we often look back on Nixon and Kissinger as this era of amoral realpolitik in American politics of the early 70s. And certainly living through it, that was my perception as a fiery young student radical, et cetera. But um, looking back on it, what it what it looks like to me is the United States got ourselves in a real pickle in Vietnam. We were divided domestically, Vietnam, civil rights. You had the inflation coming in. It was a, it was a really bad time. And in that in those tough years, there wasn't room for a lot of baggage. You know, the, you, in a storm, you throw off the excess weight in a ship. And Nixon and Kissinger couldn't afford to do a lot about human rights, I think. Once they succeeded with the triangulation, and remember, the approach to China was at the height of the Cultural Revolution when the genocidal bloodshed of Mao Zedong was flowing full force. We were cozying up to them when at the time, I mean, ugly as Brezhnev's Soviet Union was, it was a much nicer place to live in than Mao's cultural revolutionary China. Um, but once we had made those geopolitical adjustments and, and the ship of state was was on in, in smoother waters, you began to see in the United States a real hunger for bringing human rights back into politics and policy. So that both under Jimmy Carter and under Ronald Reagan, from both the left and the right, you saw a kind of, a, you know, a, as our power increased in the world, we were able to do some better things and and do the things that we did in a less objectionable way. So it, I would I would agree that in American politics and policy, values have their place. But if you get the geopolitics wrong and you get the economics wrong, you find yourself with your back to the wall and suddenly you've got to in, you know, side with mass murderer Mao against Brezhnev or mass murderer Stalin against mass murderer Hitler because you've just gotten yourself in a really bad spot. So the cost. So while some people would say, oh, there's realpolitik over here and there's rights politik over here. Rechtspolitik over here, and their opposites. I would argue, no. The foundation has got to be good realpolitik, and on that foundation, you can construct something better. So they're actually aligned, but in a slightly different way from the sort of conventional discourse. So I'm going to get to your book in a minute, but I want to dwell on Latin America and what you wrote about that for a second, too, because it also ties in with what you're saying about drinking the Kool-Aid and understanding what, what, what realistic politics means. And what I have in mind particularly is it was exactly, it was 10 years ago, right, um, that John Kerry declared that the 200-year-old Monroe Doctrine, 200-year, 1823, was dead. And what did he, and why did he say that? He said, because well, I have, actually, I've got the quote here. The doctrine that bears Monroe's name asserted our authority to step in and oppose the influence of European powers in Latin America. And throughout our nation's history, successive presidents have reinforced that doctrine and made a similar choice. Today, however, we have made a different choice. The era of the Monroe Doctrine is over. And he got applause for that. And I remember thinking at the time, and I, I believe I wrote this, he 
he thinks he's boldly reinforcing the independence and equality of our Latin American neighbors. What he doesn't get is that he's opening the door to Latin America for the 21st century imperialists. And that is what's happened, as you describe, and I'm talking now about China particularly, but also Iran and Russia. Right. Let's, of course, it's easy to blame John Kerry for this. And but fun. you know what? He's not the only one who thought that. I would argue that actually, you know, both, the, again, the neocons and the liberal internationalists were as one in embracing the good shit, you know, the cons, an insane global concept that since history was over and there wouldn't, you know, the last few bad guys were slowly vanishing. Maybe we should have a UNESCO preserve for the last dictators and all of this sort of thing. And capitalism was going to reform and make everybody prosperous and everybody peaceful and democratic. So in in such a world, you don't really need a Monroe Doctrine because you don't really need geopolitics in any serious way. And so you you didn't actually find, you know, a lot of vigilance about Latin America from either party or either the left or the right. It just sort of disappeared. And there was the illusion that the free trade area of the Americas was going to happen and that that would link us together with Latin America. That was our positive agenda for Latin America, kind of an extension of NAFTA to the rest of the hemisphere. And that, you know, but again, NAFTA didn't do much for Mexican political development, would be unlikely, I think, to solve the other problems. So, yes, Kerry you know, Kerry has a genius for expressing delusional ideas that are widely shared in the establishment. Um, and, you know, and, and so, yes, I think one can point one's finger to that as, as an example of, of poor geopolitical thought, but I just don't want to say that, that, that uh, former secretary Kerry is, was isolated when he said that. Fair enough. No, fair enough. I think you're right. He was not expressing just his idea. It was a, it was the conventional thinking among a lot of people and probably people on both sides of the of the aisle. The question is what to do now, because in terms of Latin America as free trade, it's free trade much more for already more for China than for the U.S. The Latin American, the Inter-American Development Bank had for a brief time a very a pro-American President Mauricio Claver Carone, who's been on this podcast, it's been he's been replaced by an Argentinian. The Argent, Argentina has been, and you've also written about this, um, in the delusion that Peronism is something that eventually is going to succeed, despite decades upon decades of constant failure. And people still believe that I was in Argentina at some show, and at the end, they're showing there they had. They, they, they had newsreels of Eva Perón, and everybody got up and cheered and applauded, except my host, who looked at his shoes and kind of grumbled and hoped no one would, would notice. Um, you, you also argue that Monroe had it right, um, that the, the safety and security of the U.S. requires no hostile powers return to the Western Hemisphere, into an, turn the Western Hemisphere into an arena of geopolitical rivalry. But that is what is happening right now. Uh, I'd be interested to know if you think we have a if we have a policy to push back on that, 
or if there's a policy you'd recommend to push back on, because we're losing Latin America fast, it seems to me, and not least Mexico. And that's on our border. That's not South America. That's North America. If that be, the, between the narco cartels and Chinese influence, and they work together, and Hezbollah influence, which is Hezbollah as a proxy of Iran, are in Argentina, in Venezuela, in many of the countries, it's bye bye for Latin America for the from the U.S. Well, look, I think you know there's a lot going on there, and part of what's happening is is not so much a hostile penetration as the dissolution of government or the fusion of government and criminal syndicates in particularly Central America, parts of Northern South America and Mexico. And that's driven since the United States has had two policies toward these countries. One is the official government policy of trying to um, block the power of the drug cartels, uh, stop smuggling, and so on. And one is the actual policy of the American people, which is to snort as much cocaine up our collective nose as we possibly can and damn to the consequences, all right? And it's it's a little bit, to me, it reminds me in the 19th century where you had these poor bureaucrats in Washington saying, observe the treaties with the Indians, don't seize native lands, and the American people are just out there like farming and adding to the, you know, and moving westward. And the government was helpless before the force of the people. And, I, you know, and so I think we have had these you know, we've had a weak official government policy of trying to maintain the, uh, the integrity of, of our neighboring states. It was a wise policy and a good policy, but it was completely cast aside by the determination of the American people to use illegal drugs that we imported from these countries. And and I don't see that as having changed. I think we still have but we have a an ineffective official policy, most largely ineffective official policy, and a very effective unofficial policy. Yeah, I, and look, I agree. It's demand driven. On the other hand, you're not going to that that demand's not going away because you know of a don't say no, just say no campaign. Now, fentanyl is a little, I don't want to get too deep into this, but fentanyl is a little bit different than, say, cocaine or marijuana because it's so deadly. Uh, and because, and this is a whole another area that I find kind of fascinating and distressing. The precursors for fentanyl are coming from China. They're going to the cartels. The cartels are sending them in. You would think, hey, we don't want to kill our customers, but evidently they think there are enough customers. Look, the... The Chinese, I think, uh, look at this in the historical perspective of the opium wars and yeah. so on. And and really, you know, this is not a high item on their agenda list. And and to be fair to them, if they stopped making these things, there's real those precursors. You don't need nuclear reactors and super scientists to, you know, it's, it's yeah. like a meth lab. You don't actually need a big scientific establishment to do this. So if the Chinese got out of the business, somebody else would get into it. It doesn't even need to be Walter White. Yeah, exactly. You you know you you don't need a you don't need a Hollywood contract to do. <laughs> you can do it even during the writers' strike. So, um, you know, so, so I think, you know, I mean, it's a real problem of statecraft and governance. And I would say on, on that level, we really don't know what to do. 
and a lot more skull sweat needs to go into this. I am afraid that these narco cartels have become so much of a fact that there is no no other option than trying to into than accepting their inevitable integration into governance structures in some way because they're going to be there whether we like it or not admit it or not and maybe you can you know uh you one can go from the process of primitive accumulation to a process of state formation or whatever if you see what i mean but i don't see a lot of light on that path it's not a path i would choose but given that we seem utterly unable to control our own dr- appetites for drugs here in the US, um, it's very, very hard to see uh, something. Good. But I said beyond that, that's one half of our problem. And it's a real problem. And the corrosive and of course, the the corrosion is more than just the money and the bribery and the violence and the illegality. It's then, you know, those countries don't stay pure of drug addiction themselves, the criminality spirals, et cetera. You know, a general erosion of any kind of decent, normal family life or anything else just spiraling out of control in these in in, in our neighborhood. It's not good. It's happening. It's very hard to know what to do to stop it. Right. Beyond yeah. that. Yeah. Unless, you know, I mentioned Mexico is North America. Mexico is our closest neighbor. There are large ungoverned spaces in Mexico. They're, the Wild West is not over. It still exists there. And there, and there's no sheriff and there's no marshal going into the... the right. And I will say that this attitude, the idea that a few people have brooded about sending U.S. troops down there seems to me like one of the worst ideas I have personally ever heard of. Uh, I really think the the less the United States armed forces have to do with with territory control by narco traffickers, the better for everyone concerned. This is not a good idea. What could go wrong, right? <laughs> well, it, you know, look how happy it made Woodrow Wilson to chase Pancho Villa. I mean, really, it's just not, um, not great. So, but then beyond that, I think what we have to say, because not all of South America is a narco trafficking, you know, crisis zone, but we have no positive agenda for the region. We have, you know, if if you were to ask somebody, what does American leadership mean in Latin America? They would justifiably laugh in your face because we, we aren't offering anything. We're offering nothing essentially on trade. We're offering nothing on, you know, security. What security problems of Latin America are we proposing to solve? If you're, you know, what about Latin America's constant feeling of being unduly underrepresented and ignored in global forums and its voice not being heard? We don't really have an agenda for how you would address that. Um, You know, so... They there are a lot of problems in Latin America, but nobody in Latin America is checking to see. Oh well, what does Washington propose? Any good ideas coming out of there, or even where is Washington providing focus support for good ideas coming out of Latin America? I don't see it. All right, let's move on to your book, your most recent book, The Ark of a Covenant. Um, I'm going to start with a kind of. The book has been spectacularly well-reviewed. Everybody listening should buy a copy. 
and dip into it and read it. It's fascinating. Every chapter, every page, so much there. But I'm just curious to know, you've been talking about it for quite a while now. At this point, is it like, oh, I'm I'm just sick of talking about this? Or is it like you've got a really good joke and you want new audiences to tell it to? I'm just curious how you respond to that. Well, it's, you know, the, the thing about U.S.-Israel relations is it's a subject that never gets stale. Um, and, you know, a lot of the questions in the book are things like, you know, what, what's the intellectual history of Zionism? How does... How does, you know, Israeli Jews and American Jews have had very different historical experiences? How does that shape their perceptions? All of these things are actually more salient than ever. And so, I, you know, and then the question of the, the relationship of the American left to the Demo- and the Democratic Party to Israel, which is certainly something I was looking at in the book, the whole relationship of support for Israel and the Trump phenomenon and the rather odd mix of of attitudes and characteristics that you can find with Trump's approach to Israel, it all just keeps moving along. So I feel like when the subject comes up, we're not going back into something that is old and stale and irrelevant, but it's, you know, wow, you know. And the other thing you do, uh, and rather brilliantly, I may say, is a lot of your the history you, you do here, uh, for want of a better word, is revisionist. But it's not revisionist based on, you know, that's the way you want to see it. You bring in evidence, you bring in data to show that actually we don't, the, the, the conventional views are wrong and have been wrong all along. Now, one you know, an obvious example would be, you know, Truman did not listen to a former haberdasher friend and for that reason, go ahead and recognize Israel, right? That, you know, he made that clear. I'd heard that before, but you make it. Um, an inter- another inter- an interesting one, and maybe you'll elaborate on this a little bit, is how how and why, more importantly, why Stalin was <laughs> instrumental in establishing the state of Israel. Yeah, this is, uh, it, it is really a fascinating story. And again, because Stalin didn't keep a diary, uh, and he probably would have lied to it if he did. Um, uh, we don't, you know, we, we have to kind of reconstruct Stalin's thinking from evidence. And and he was a very crafty guy who was also subject to some very crude delusions and to put together, you know, where Stalin was really almost superhumanly intelligent and whether he was where he was almost subhumanly, um, you know, just provincial and ignorant. It's a fast, you're, you're constantly wrestling with it, but it does seem that in, in, you know, after world war two, Stalin continued to believe that driving a wedge between Britain and the United States was the key to his success. And he saw Britain as in some ways an even more dangerous opponent than the United States. It was weaker, but it was in his face in a way that the U.S. wasn't. Because we forget that that after World War II, Stalin's big ambitions were actually to push into Southern Europe and the Middle East so that he's got this Greek civil war going with the communists there. He's solidifying his control over Bulgaria, Romania, hoping he's going to keep Yugoslavia in the fold. But he's putting a lot of pressure on Turkey. He still has troops in northern Iran. He has, you know, and it's everywhere. It's the British that are opposing him. 
The British are subsidizing the Greek government and giving military aid. The British are stiffening the spines of the Turks. And the British are very poor at this point. And under a labor government, which is trying to to bring in a lot of very expensive welfare reforms and socialist nationalization of industries and so on. So, and the British are doing all of this largely because they think that keeping the their the arabs inside the sterling zone um so that the arab oil is in the sterling zone is the key to maintaining british prosperity and british world power even as they lose the indian empire as india becomes independent and both stalin and the british understand that the Zionist movement, the success of the Zionist movement threatens to destroy the British position in the Middle East because um, the Arabs will, are already angry at the British over the Balfour Declaration, which in their mind created the whole problem. And then now if Britain can't actually control the Zionists, um, then no Arab leader would be able to identify with Britain, support Britain. The, the ones who stayed loyal would be overthrown. The ones who wanted to keep power would have to side, you know, would have to turn on Britain unless Britain can control the Zionists. And so Stalin, by encouraging the Zionists and encouraging the war, is is both weakening the U.S.-British alliance because the U.S. was very emotionally pro the Zionists at this point. See, the poor refugees, they need to go somewhere. And the British are saying, this will destroy the power of your only ally against the Soviet Union, you idiots, right? That's their point of view. And the State Department and the CIA agree with the British while the Pentagon is saying that the Jews will lose the war. If a war breaks out, the Jews will lose and we will have no ability to help them. So, you know, that's the mix in which American policy is being made, where Truman is trying to sort of, you know, somehow steer his way through this storm. Storm of incorrect analysis and uh, and the exercise of of laws of unintended consequences. Exactly. And the fact that to some degree, both sort of pro-Israel and anti-Israel writers have colluded to turn this into a story of, of American Jewish control over American foreign policy. Sort of, you know, on the one hand, it sort of promotes a kind of American Jewish chauvinistic pride in our power and, you know, in the community's power. And on the other hand, inflames the kind of, you know, the Jews control everything. We have to fight the Jews all around the same story, while at the same time actually obscuring an important and revealing element of world history at a critical time. It's a textbook example for how the fog of anti-Semitism and prejudice can blind us to realities that we actually do need to see. I'm going to ask you to elaborate on that just a little more because you take on, you challenge, you rebut what you call colorfully the rancid urban legend known as the Israel lobby theory. Just expand on that and summarize those arguments. People should read it, but. Well, look, it's, 
I mean, and I'm like, talking about John Mearsheimer and Stephen Wolf and their 2007 book, which you contend that while they're not anti-Semites, I don't think they are. I've certainly met John Mearsheimer. I've met Stephen Wolf. But are you right? It electrified anti-Semites around the world by seeming to lend the authority of well-known academics to this calumny. I don't mention names or uh, you right. know cast stones. I just and, did, but all right. uh, you know <laughs> you you're, you're free to do what you want to do, and I'll do what I want to do. Absolutely, um, because I think it's more important. Again, one, one of the things I tried to do in the book is this is a subject in which people on both sides really want to cancel the other side <laughs> and in some it's almost ground zero of of the cancellation wars and i remember uh it's a quote i found early in the book uh, macaulay once said of sarah churchill john the uh, duke of marlborough's wife she hated easily she hated heartily she hated implacably <laughs> you know, too many americans are trying to take sarah churchill as a role model these days so i'm trying to stay out of that however you know when you get down to it anti-semitism is similar to other forms of hate and prejudice in that it's a moral fault that injures both the victims of the prejudice, but the holders of the prejudice. It makes it makes everything worse. It makes life worse for everyone. But in anti-Semitism, because it's fundamentally a false theory about power and how power works, it blinds the anti-Semite to an understanding of how politics, how the world works. So if you think, for example, that the Jews control banking. It means you don't have a clue how the financial system works. And the financial system is actually understanding it is necessary to any understanding of what's going on in American politics, what's going on in geopolitics and so on. If you think the Jews as some sort of united group are are manipulating this system and that explains all these phenomena, you just, you know, you're a poor, clueless idiot who doesn't get to think what if you think the Jews control the media. And that's why Americans are pro-Israel. Again, first of all, you get the weird thing that the most pro-Israel news source in the U.S. is is not, you know, is not uh, Rupert Murdoch. It's not Jewish. He's an Australian of Christian background. I don't know what his religious convictions are, if any. Um, and the, the kinds of people on Fox News that are making the strong pro-Israel statements are people with names like uh, Tucker Carlson or Bill O'Reilly in the past. These are not Jewish names. If you go to media outlets where you know, there's there's more visible Jewish participation among the anchors and things like that, the words CNN do come to mind, you find actually much more critical assessments of Israel and Israeli politics and a much less, quote, pro-Zionist um, take. So or the New York Times, which was or the New York Times. Well, historically, when the New York Times was owned by a Christian family in the uh, 19th century, it was a pro-Zionist newspaper. And it became anti-Zionist when it's when it was bought by a new Jewish owner. I'm not saying I'm not, by the way, saying the New York Times is anti-Zionist today. These things are very complicated. I would but, say that, but, 
but in certainly in the 19 teens and 20s it was it was explicitly and overtly anti-zionist right all right I'll, i'm going to ask you two more questions one substantive one frivolous the substantive one is the united nations at this point get back to that quote you gave earlier implacably anti-israel and and maybe anti-Semitic, because I would say that anti-Israelism is a mutation of anti-Semitism. You don't have to agree with that, but that's my interpretation. Well, I'd say the United Nations is profoundly dysfunctional in in almost every respect. <laughs> and that, you know, and that it's at, at its views on Israel command all the intellectual and moral authority of its views on who should be on the UN Human Rights Commission. Uh, so it's just, I mean, it's a, it, it, it is a kind of a political absurdity. I think we need a United Nations. If it didn't exist, we would be trying to womp something up. Hopefully we'd womp something up better. I'm not sure that we would, but here it is. And it is for most purposes, largely useless. And for that reason, very few people pay real attention to what it does. I wish it were just useless, not harmful. And I i mean, uh, Iran now uh, is a vice president of the General Assembly. By acclamation, all those countries that we are, that our diplomats reach out to, that we give aid to, I, they should, they're just fine with Iran as it, as it kills its own people, as it is the major source of terrorism in the Middle East. That's just fine to give for for the Islamic. But I just, is there any? I just wonder. If but I think look, Cliff. But one reason for that is that the Biden administration, and for that matter, I think any other American administration, isn't going to go to the mat over a vote on who the vice president of the General Assembly is, because it really doesn't matter who the vice president of the General Assembly is, because the General Assembly itself doesn't really matter very much. And and so these countries that are getting aid and so on, they know that when the American ambassador comes along, he says, please don't vote for Iran. They know that we don't really mean that because we don't really care all that much about it. We don't like it. But there are a lot of things you don't like that you kind of don't respond to. I think Xi Jinping sees a way to take over the the U.N. as part of his drive to take over the international order as such. And I think he's actually doing a heck of a good job of it so far. Well, I think he's he's getting, you know, getting the, the scientific and technical bodies in the UN have a bit more weight. But and he is sort of playing the institutions. But again, I think if we were to focus on those more aggressively, I don't think that Iran being vice president of the General Assembly is going to affect you know, the scientific debates that actually matter. The World I, Health Organization has also been taken over, and that by China, well, we pay 10 times as much, and that has mattered. Well, again, I, as I say, the scientific and technical bodies matter more. But, you know, that would have happened regardless of whether Iran, I just want us to distinguish between the sort of symbolic things that make people's blood pressure go up right but which actually have zero impact on anything in the real world and then the the things which people don't pay attention to but which actually do have real impact in the real world so i would say the united states needs a focused un policy but it but that policy 
is not going to be one of running around with our hair on fire because some irrelevant committee publishes an irrelevant report. You know, we should be much more focused on things like how the WHO is governed, what it does and what doesn't do, et cetera, et cetera. All right. My final question for the day. Um, you're so prolific. You do such good work. Um, what do you do to unwind? Fortunately for me, a lot of what I like to do is travel around the world and meet interesting people and see and enjoy different cultures and different experiences. So that kind of comes under the heading of work, technically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and. You know, I also I, I I like to read. I read trashy science fiction novels, but <laughs> I also, you know, I uh, I read. You know, try to. Re I was an English major, a literature major in college, and I I still love reading literature. Right before this podcast, I was reading an essay on uh, W. H. Auden and his, uh, you know, politics, and you know, so. Thanks. And I'm going to spend a week uh, at the beach with 39 relatives uh, in uh, in South Carolina in, uh, in in a couple of weeks. So, you know, I find I find little ways to enjoy myself. All right. That's fascinating to know. Walter Russell, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you for the work you do. Um, your, your books need to be read. Your columns absolutely required reading for anybody who's listening to this podcast anybody who is that cares something about national security and foreign policy so and thanks for being with us today thank you cliff you enjoyed i enjoyed this and best of luck to you thank you and thanks to all of you who joined us in this virtual room for this virtual conversation for being with us today here on foreign policy thank you for listening to foreign policy if you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.